I'm Breen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our politics, our culture, and the way we live and respond to the world around us. This week, we begin with the story of Howard Baskerville. What motivated a young 22-year-old to leave the comforts of his home in North Dakota to embark on a global mission trip from which he would never return? Killed on a battlefield, he earned the moniker an American Lafayette. Two years after Howard Baskerville arrives at a post in Tabriz, he joins his students to fight in a revolution to replace an authoritarian leader with a constitutional system of government. It's a story I suspect you have never heard. Scholar, historian, and best-selling author Reza Aslan wants to change that. His new book, An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Reza Aslan believes Baskerville's story can help Americans see the region differently and understand that the yearning for freedom has deep roots in Persia. I spoke to Aslan on the day the book was published and as he's preparing for a national multi-city book tour. Reza Aslan, welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. It is a pleasure to have you. So you have a new book and it's a departure in some ways from some of your other writing in that you're not tackling this big question of religion. You're talking about this individual that, frankly, I had never heard of before I got your book, Howard Baskerville. Reza, why this book? Why now? Well, you know, this is a story that I feel like I've known all my life, at least the basic outlines of it. Pretty much any Iranian of a certain generation has heard of Howard Baskerville because for nearly a century, he was considered a, a national hero in Iran, this 22-year-old Christian missionary who went to what was then called Persia in 1907 in order to teach English and preach the gospel, but who ended up fighting and then eventually dying in Iran's first democratic revolution. Actually, the first democratic revolution in the entire Middle East, the constitutional revolution of 1906. And that death and the role that he played in the ultimate success of that revolution, which resulted in a progressive constitution and an elected parliament in Iran, very briefly transformed Iran into a constitutional monarchy, has always gave, given him an elevated status in Iranian history and in the minds of many Iranians. His tomb is still in Tabriz. It used to be a, a place of gathering and pilgrimage for, for decades. There's a bust of him in the Constitutional Museum in Tabriz, uh, a golden bust of him and a big painting of him. Uh, and, you know, I think since the 79 revolution, that memory of him has started to fade away. Um, I have some friends in Iran now telling me that it's really hard to find people, uh, especially younger people, who have heard of Howard Baskerville, or maybe they've heard of Howard Baskerville, but they don't really know that much about him. And, and I wanted to change that, not just for Iran, but also for the fact that while, you know, he's no longer that well known in Iran, he was never known in America. The vast majority of Americans, this is the first time they've, they've heard this name. Um, 
And that's a shame because, you know, this was a, a really heroic life, uh, a, a life that had a real meaningful impact, um, not just on history, but on the lives of thousands of Iranians. And it's a story that I think needs to be told now more than ever as we're looking at Iran and seeing people on the streets fighting for the exact same rights that Howard Baskerville and his fellow Iranians at the time died for. You bring up the present and link Baskerville's fight for constitutional freedoms for Persians to the present day revolution. And I can totally see that, especially as I'm watching what's unfolding on the streets. But that's not the only link. Early in this book, you lay out the geopolitical significance of Russia. Well, in 1907, Russia was the most powerful empire in the world. It was the largest empire in the world. Um, and it was engaged in what history now calls the great game uh, between the British Empire for control over the natural resources of the Middle East. And while Iran itself was never directly colonized by either Russia or Britain, it became the primary staging ground for that great game for uh, a generation, um, really right up until the First World War, when it just Iran became carved in two with the the Russians controlling the North and the British controlling the South. And the Brits, you know, got the better deal because the South is where oil was discovered, I should say. But throughout the revolution uh, of 1906, the Russians were the main benefactors of the Shah, of the Iranian government. Um, There was a direct connection between the Tsar and the Shah. They had a good relationship with each other, but there was also a military and strategic connection. The Shah's uh, military force, the so-called Cossack Brigade, was funded, armed, and led by Russians, literally led by Russians. The Russians were the commanders of the Iranian army. And the Tsar was very clear about the fact that the primary duty of the Cossack Brigade was to put an end to this revolution. Mm-hmm. And so there was that geopolitical kind of connection there. But I was thinking of something a little bit more, I guess, spiritual, if you will, which is that there's a lot of lessons to be learned about the the life of Howard Baskerville. And we talked about one of them, which is sort of the connection between the Iranian people and the American people. You know, we're at a time right now in which democracy seems to be in retreat and under attack around the world, even here in the United States, where large swath of Americans seem to have lost their taste for democracy altogether. And so when you talk about a young man, a 22-year-old man, who believed so fully that God's will for people was freedom, that God's will was democracy, that all people everywhere in the world should have a say in the decisions that ruled their lives, and was willing to actually sacrifice himself for that right, for people who weren't his own, you know, for a stranger. It's hard to make an argument right now that this is someone that we should emulate, that this is a, a model for what we owe each other around the world. But my hope is, is that this can be a reminder of the value that we as Americans ascribe to. There's so many parallels in the period we're living in now in how people are trying to make sense of what is unfolding and where and how their faith informs their engagement 
in public life. And Howard Baskerville, I was struck by your taking us through his early life and then his mentorship, it sounds like, by Woodrow Wilson before he becomes president. I'm struck by how he was able to influence this young man to get on a ship filled with the spirit of, I want to help others. Then he gets to Tabriz and he starts to see this unfolding. And you've described it like this, you know, there's this revolutionary impulse and the revolutionary impulse for listeners. This is not about creating an autocracy out of an empire. This wasn't just happening in Iran. The first couple of decades of the 20th century was uh, a, a tumultuous time, kind of like what we're seeing mm-hmm. right now, where there were these popular protests and revolutions taking place in large parts of the world. We mentioned Russia right. and Iran already, but this was an era in which people were demanding precisely that kind of control. It's just that this particular revolution in Iran became the sort of rallying cry for the rest of the world. And that's the, one of the most remarkable aspects of the constitutional revolution is that, yes, it was an Iranian affair. Fundamentally, it became a civil war uh, between the Shah of Iran and these revolutionaries. But it drew in anti-imperialists from all over the world, Georgians, and Russians, and Turks, and Arabs. This was a multi-religious coalition. There were Jews who commanded troops uh, amongst the revolutionary army. There were Baha'is who had taken a vow of nonviolence and yet had joined this army. Buddhists, which at the time there were a large number of Buddhists in Western Iran, joined these forces united by this notion of freedom from tyranny and all of whom were willing to give their lives for it. And amongst this sort of big, a diverse coalition of, of faiths and nationalities was one American, <laughs> this one American kid who, despite the fact that he was told in no uncertain terms by the church that had sent him to Tabriz, by the school in which he taught, the Presbyterian school in which he taught, and by the U.S. government, the, by the State Department, which um, had repeatedly warned its missionaries under threat of treason, they actually, the, the government actually used the word treason. At the time of, of Baskerville, what was the state of mind that you were able to suss out in your research about where the U.S. government was when they see this young American Presbyterian missionary participating and starting to take a leadership role in a revolution in Tabriz? The U.S. government had and they wrote this down and they you know, distributed it to all their consulates and embassies in the region. And their argument was as clear as could be. History does not record any instance in which a democracy arose in a country ruled by Muslims. Quote, Islam seems to imply autocracy. And so therefore, there is no chance for this revolution to succeed. Uh, and remember, America had absolutely no interest in Iran whatsoever. America had no relationship with Iran. But it said very clearly that there's no point in coming to uh, the rescue or the assistance of these revolutionaries because there's no chance that this thing could possibly succeed because there's no such thing as Islamic democracy. 
there was a religious debate and discourse among the clerics in Persia at the time around, yes, let's embrace constitutionalism because it is better than the arbitrary corruption that comes under the, you know, the, the, the power of these rulers and quoting the Quran, quoting all of these verses about the king and the pauper are the same in the eyes of of God. I mean, look, I think it's going to, it's going to sort of fry people's minds because all they really understand is the current state of the Islamic Republic in which a unelected, you know, clerical body maintains complete control over almost all aspects of the Iranian government and which sort of force feeds a very conservative interpretation of Shia Islam upon its population uh, and usually, you know, uh, at risk of great punishment for those who defy it. But what people don't understand is that every single revolution that has taken place in Iran in 1906, in 1953, and in 1979 had clerics at the forefront clerics clamoring for freedom and autonomy and democracy, even today. When you're referring to the Shah, you're not referring to the same person or the same family over this period of time. Right. Yeah, the Shah just means the the king. And Iran has been, until 1979... Um, under the rule of a succession of kings called shahs, all of whom maintain absolute power, uh, divinely inspired power. You can think of the shah very much the same way that you think of the czar. In fact, the word means the same thing. Bring us to the present as you're talking about this history and you're talking about these chapters of resistance and leadership that we may not know about Based on what you know and in your unique relationship to the region, what do you see coming? Well, if we look back to that first revolution, I think there are some some real keys and some takeaways there. And, and I would focus on two of them. First, it has a little bit to do with what we were just talking about a little while ago, that revolutions succeed when they build coalitions. The revolution in 1906 worked because It had young, zealous revolutionaries, many of them educated, um, familiar with sort of Western ideas of constitutionalism and popular sovereignty and desperate to create an indigenous version of that and willing to pour out onto the streets um, and fight for it. But it also required the business interests at the time to join. There needed to be strikes. The merchant class needed to join in and really give the sort of the power of the purse and the threat of damaging the economy in order to promote these incredible ideals these young people were calling for. But even that's not enough because then it required the clerics, the religious class, to be able to galvanize the pious masses, the masses who you know, sure, freedom, that sounds great, but I can't even read a constitution. So I don't really know what you're talking about when you say, you know, you want to write a constitution. But what I do understand is oppression. I do understand marginalization. I do understand how hard it is to to feed my family. 
And if you're telling me that this is something that can change all that, then I'm in. And it's that coalition of the young revolutionaries, the business interests, and the pious masses um, that brought the Shah down in 1909 and helped the revolution that Baskerville died in succeed. It's the same coalition that uh, sent the Shah into exile very briefly in 1953, but then, of course, the CIA put him right back on the throne. And it's the exact same coalition that brought the Shah down in 79 and transformed Iran into the Islamic Republic, unfortunately, replacing one tyranny for another tyranny. And so that's the magic coalition. So lesson one, we have these young, zealous people who are willing to die for their most basic rights. What we now are starting to see is the business and merchant class joining this revolution. So just this morning, uh, reports have come out of Iran about the oil workers union going on strike in Abadan. And that's a very, very big deal. These strikes have the ability to absolutely grind a economy that's already on the verge of total collapse uh, into just, you know, nothingness. And if that happens, then this escalates to a whole other level. But there is a third stage, and it's the one that we were talking about, which is the pious master. Already, what's been remarkable is that we have seen retirees and factory workers and farm workers, conservatives coming out onto the streets, supporting these women, but also demanding economic change. You know, I mean, right now, the population of Iran is 50% under the poverty rate. There's a, a 50% uh, inflation rate in Iran. Food, basic foodstuffs have, have jumped by 300% uh, because of the removal of subsidies. And so we are seeing the, the sort of the pious masses, the lower classes joining in these revolutions, um, demanding their own change. And we're even seeing women dressed in chadors. Uh, marching alongside Gen Zers in, you know, jeans and t-shirts. And so the reason that I and a number of other Iran watchers have begun to start talking about this as a revolution and not an uprising is because it has essentially satisfied those three major elements that I was talking about that has led to all the other revolutions in Iran. But then there's another thing. And this is, I think, the, the last part of this, which is really important. The other reason that the revolution in 1906 succeeded is because it caught the imagination of the world. People all over the world came to join in this revolution because they really saw this as the most important anti-imperial struggle at the time. You have to pay attention to what's happening right now. This is significant. By us paying attention, by us watching the actions of the Iranian government, we can keep them as much as is possible responsible for the crimes that they are committing. What comes next? If this revolution is successful, where do you see the next stage and what role does faith play in it? One of the lessons that came out of reading your book was how the power of belief in a higher calling, in the divine, in the promise of justice 
can inspire people from different points of view to come together in service of this common objective of confronting tyranny. When that tyranny is confronted, the difficult work then begins. Yeah, and it's hard to know what could come next or if what comes next is worse. We don't know. Um, There's so much left to sort of unfold. Um, We are still waiting for those young seminary students, you know, that I was talking about and those uh, religious leaders, especially the grand ayatollahs, all of whom think that the Islamic Republic is an abomination. Um, and who, you know, who think that the very concept of a supreme leader is heretical to Islam. Uh, we're, we're waiting for their voices to start coming out, um, and, and rallying the people against the clerical leaders. And then, you know, to be perfectly frank, we're waiting for the supreme leader to die. I mean, Khamenei is a very old, very sick man who has been practically on his deathbed for quite some time. And you never know in these kinds of historical moments what the last spark will be. And there's always the possibility that the military finally steps in and takes over. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I'm Ambreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, my conversation with Reza Aslan. As we get back to the conversation to learn more about Howard Baskerville and how the revolutionary spirit in Iran goes far back 
far further than many of us realize. Raza details this in his new book, An American Martyr in Persia, the epic life and tragic death of Howard Baskerville. Let's get back to the conversation. I have been absolutely taken by the social media reels that are being authenticated by outlets like BBC World, from trusted journalists, where you're seeing this uprising happening, and it's women and men, and it's like this courage on the streets that absolutely, I don't know, it just completely runs counter to some of the popular media images that we have about this country and about its people. Well, two things. It shouldn't run counter because we have seen, you know, these women on the streets for 40 years demanding their rights. It's just kind of where maybe it's a little bit more dramatic now and we're paying attention. Women were at the forefront of the 1906 revolution that Baskerville died in. Uh, in fact, women uh, formed a, 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 a huge uh, part of the revolutionary army. They cropped their hairs and, and, and exchanged their clothes for, for pants. They picked up guns and they fought shoulder to shoulder with the men, which caused quite a scandal in Europe. They created women's unions that, uh, that ensured, uh, the advancement of women's rights, women's property rights, divorce rights, um, in the constitution. In 1953, again, women were at the forefront, um, demanding the right to vote and they got the right to vote, uh, as part of that, uh, um, revolution. In 79, women were literally at the front lines of the marches, daring the, the Shah's soldiers to shoot at them. Um, you know, and shaming them for, you know, attacking their own people. I mean, that, the, the fact that women were at the, at the front lines of those marches has a huge part to play with why the soldiers eventually put down their guns, abandoned the Shah and joined the revolution. It comes as a surprise to many who do not follow the politics or the stories or the history because the media images and the popular images that we get in our movies do not show that power. It doesn't show women's voices as powerful. They are depicted and portrayed as submissive and as veiled and as oppressed and as in need of saving. I will say that what America loves to do is use other peoples and other cultures as a mirror to try to define itself and to ward off its own uh, problems and issues. So. Again, the situation is quite different, but there have been more women in the Iranian government, in Iran's parliament, than women in America's uh, legislative body. I Iran had a female vice president eight years before America had a female vice president. Even now, what I find the most grotesque in the way that uh, a segment of American population is looking at the the revolution in Iran is that they're looking at it through the lens of this imperialism that says, oh, these poor women who need saving, unlike our women whose rights we are systematically taking away, that image that we have of Iranian women, it's deliberate. It's fed by the media and by our politicians. And its purpose is to ward off what we really should be doing, which is looking at ourselves and the horrific way in which we uh, treat our women in, in the United States and the rights that we 
uh, are not all taking away from them, but also the ways in which we are trying to control their bodies. Yes, but look at the Iranian government. They force their women to wear a headscarf, you know. Yes, we're trying to take reproductive rights away from our women, but at least we let them wear what they want. We got to be very careful about that kind of hypocrisy, which is everywhere in American media and American government and American society. You've spent your time professionally, academically, your career as a storyteller, a scholar, trying to counter narratives with information and history. And I see this book as part of that body of work, which often centers and puts a spotlight on how religion and religious actors play in the events that are unfolding. So I just I want to go back for a moment to what we were talking about uh, in Iran and specifically how Ayatollah Khomeini's leadership not only changed the government, but also changed religious life in Iran. Again, mindful, Reza, that many of us don't know the history or the history of the theology uh, of the Shia tradition. The supreme leader, the position of the supreme leader, which is called Balayat al-Faqi, was wholly the invention of Khomeini. He created this thing out of whole cloth. It has absolutely no history in 1,500 years of Shia thought. No one had ever thought about this idea that there should be a single cleric, you know, in charge of all society. And as Khomeini himself wrote, that that cleric should have the same power and infallible authority as the Prophet Muhammad. That is the height of heresy in, in Islam. And so people need to understand that this is even though it controls the largest Shia country in the world, it is a minority theological view in Shiism. It's a minority theological view in Iranian Shias. Like if you go to Qom, which is the center of, of religion, uh, Shia religion in Iran, if you go to Qom, um, by the way, not only will you see it's the same protests that you're seeing in Tehran on the streets, but if you go to any one of the seminaries, what you will see is intense debate over whether what is happening is even heretical or or blasphemous or not. The government that Iran exists under doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. This idea that political power should should rest in the hands of the clerics. That idea, I think for a lot of Americans are like, well, isn't that how Islam has always been? Isn't that at the core of Islam? And what I'm trying to say is not only has that never, ever been the case in Islamic history, and when I say never, I mean never, but it is an idea that has no basis in Islamic law or Islamic tradition or Islamic theology. Are you hearing from people inside Iran about the attention that uh, people around the world are giving to what's unfolding on the ground? 100%. (laughs) Yeah, I understand the skeptical uh, response that we're hearing a lot from people who are like, oh, I mean, do you really think your tweets and your Facebook posts actually matter? Do you think like, you know, yeah, your Instagram, it's slacktivism. It's not doing anything. You should ask the people on the streets in Iran. They live 
for those tweets and those Instagram posts. They are being told by their government that nobody cares, nobody hears them, nobody sees them, that frankly, the government can do whatever the hell they want. And no one can do anything about it because no one will know. And the fact that people around the world are proving that wrong is galvanizing these young people on the streets. One of my um, friends in Iran just told that the first thing that happens is that their phones are seized and the government goes through their social media um, to find out like what is being said, what is being shared, what are you, what's going on. This is an incredibly powerful tool. Tyrants, the way that they stay in power is by isolating their people. You know, uh, the way they control populations is by turning the lights off and killing everyone in the darkness. There is no way of isolating people that we can see what's happening. They can communicate with us. We can create solidarity. And the people on the street know that it's not just them and the gun in front of them, that all of us, all of us are watching and we're not going to turn away. And those eyeballs, believe it or not, do matter. We have so many, you know, misunderstandings and, and, and false assumptions about uh, the way that the Iranian government works. But amongst the biggest is this idea that the government is implacable, that it can't, you know, be embarrassed uh, or it can't be punished or it can't be forced, you know, to change its behavior. And that is nonsense. <laughs> like we just, I just watched this morning. Uh, one of Iran, uh, I believe it was the chief of, uh, of police, uh, make a speech to the Iranian public saying, essentially, we hear you. Uh, you know, what, what happened to Masa Amini was wrong. And, uh, you know, we're, we're willing to talk. Uh, there are reforms that we can make so that, you know, the people can be happy. I mean, this, these are the words of a regime that knows that everyone is watching and that they're not going to just be able to murder their way out of this. So please, people, please, whoever is listening, don't let anyone tell you that your social media activism is nonsense. Your social media activism is literally keeping kids in Iran alive. Reza Aslan is a scholar of world religions. He is a best-selling author and an Emmy and Peabody-nominated producer. He's a recipient of the prestigious James Joyce Award and is the author of three internationally best-selling books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. His producing credits include the acclaimed HBO series, The Leftovers, He's also the host and executive producer of two other television programs, Rough Draft with Reza Aslan on Topic and CNN's documentary series, Believer. He's also the co-host of the podcast, Metaphysical Milkshake. Aslan received his Doctor of Philosophy in Sociology with a focus on the history of religion from the University of California, Santa Barbara. We'll have links to the book as well as conversations from our archive, where he talks with my predecessor, Maureen Fiedler, about Zealot, the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Stay with us. 